Good evening, everyone. Nice to be with you. So, yesterday evening we spoke a little bit about bhakti. And we ended the discussion with mention of the fact that there are different types of bhakti, or different schools of bhakti. Bhakti comes from the Sanskrit root, verbal root, bhaj, uh, which gives a meaning of to give and to take. So this is, of course, what loving is about, giving, and the giving becomes the receiving. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So <coughs> that said, um, as we know, in our uh, material experience, there are different kinds of love, for that matter. Here we're speaking about spiritual love, and there's a variety there as well. And there are two basic divisions in bhakti of divine love, and those divisions are majestic love, which is the common idea of loving God, which is kind of love in which you step back a little bit and you fold your hands, and it's uh, well reverential. Hmm? And the Greeks refer to it as agape. Hmm? So otherworldly. And uh, this type of love, even while it creates a bond between ourselves, the spark, if you will, of consciousness and the fire, it um, at the same time um, creates a bit, a bit of, a, of a distance where there's the God and there's the worshiper and then there's the worship. Um, and so the second division of love, love and majesty or reverence, reverential love. Second division is in bhakti is love and intimacy. So that is peculiar because there we find the idea that uh, the uh, devotee can by the power, if you will, of love and devotion cause the Godhead, who is a worshipable object, if you will, to relate with the devotee on intimate terms, like you would with a friend, or a lover, or a parent would with a child. These are the types of love we're familiar with in this world. We love our kids, we love our parents, we love friends, um, we love our lovers, um, we love our teachers. So, the idea here is that there, the, 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 as the measure or the strength of that kind of love is very powerful and compelling, and it creates an intimate bond. So, similarly, one can have such an intimate bond with the, with the Absolute. It's a very interesting concept. And this is, of course, um, something that our school of bhakti is uh, preoccupied with. And the principal method, if you will, to this madness is the chanting, as I think I left off last night, um, called Kirtan. So I thought I would speak a little bit about Kirtan. It's become a popular thing in the yoga community and whatnot. Um, And as bhakti itself has as as well, and in my humble estimation, it's it's not very well understood often, so... um, holds true with uh, 
with kirtan, which, for example, um, is never to, to be a form of entertainment, if you will. Hmm. Um, wherein the kirtaneers who are doing the kirtan are on the stage to be um, lauded and whatnot, but rather they're giving laudation to the Godhead and seeing themselves even as um, assistants in, for example, holding the, the traditional this traditional instrument from back West Bengal for this type of Nam Kirtan, the cold Murdunga or the or the hand symbols and so forth. Um, <coughs> and again, the central focus of the Kirtan is the to vibrate, if you will, not so much with the tongue or here with the ear, but with the heart to give of oneself to the Godhead and make a communion, if you will, or union, by this medium of the Logos. Hmm? The Logos means a name, and name means a lot. Say, what's in a name? And there's quite a bit there, as we know. You can find a person by their name. If someone calls, and then you ask who called, and did you get his name, then, you know, you can follow up. As I've said before, these days, now we have a in the United States, we have the social security number here. You have the cedula. I don't know what it is in Britain. Probably everybody has some kind of ID number that if they get it, then they can take your whole bank account. Somebody can. Um, so a name contains a lot, even in this world. And so this idea of taking advantage of the, the idea that there is a divine reality and it has names. It's not a too too um, um, too much of a stretch to appreciate, and indeed every every spiritual tradition has some sense of um, sacredness with regard to the uh, the sound, Om, the sound of the Godhead. Um, um, I think in the Christian tradition it says something to that effect that the first the, in the beginning there was the there was the Word. The Logos. The logo means name and also means logic, right? So there's a logic to it. There is a, um, there is a beauty to the name and there's um, a philosophy that underlies um, the uh, invoking of the divine Logos. So we tend to... Uh, reason about that and to speak about that in ways that it has been spoken about in the sacred texts and then uh, accordingly engage ourselves in an emotional way. So you have the, the intellectual kind of side of it. There's a philosophy that underlies it and then if you understand that you can, that much more you can give yourself emotionally um, to, the, uh, to the name in Kirtan. And um, it's a... Uh, it's a powerful experience, and that the, the particular type of kirtan that we do primarily is, is what we call, well, nam kirtan. It's the kirtan of the different names of the Godhead, and the many names. The names in which we invoke speak about the Godhead in terms of a, a relationship and intimacy 
with the absolute rather than in reverence. We don't use names like Creator, um, Allah, hmm, um, the Wise One, Buddha, something like that. Um, but um, names that speak about the Godhead in terms of the Godhead's having a relationship in intimacy with um, Siddha's great great souls. And in terms of that rapport, hmm, then, uh, uh, well, just like in any relationship, names come out of relationships. We, you have a relationship with, uh, and you do things with someone, and so there's ways of talking about it. So these are, these type of names would be in our tradition, primary names as opposed to secondary names. Secondary names of God are names like that pertain to this world. This is not the main stage. Hmm? This is, in my analogy, last night, the smoke here. And so now we're talking about the subjective world, not the objective world of matter, the inner subjective and meditative world and the possibilities that lie there. Hmm? And the realm of intimacy with our source. And so names from that realm hmm, are the primary names because they speak about not the world of illusion hmm, that we, to some extent, obviously find ourselves in, but the, the inner world of reality where there are impossible. That's, that's not found in the dictionary. Hmm. And so, in our tradition, and this um, nam dharma dharma of the of, of the name invoking the name in kirtan was um, inaugurated by by Sri Chaitanya about 500 years ago. At this time in India, there was a, somewhat of a revolution, a revival or a revolution, a theistic, a spiritual revolution. There was a certain group that had more or less a monopoly on spirituality, and it was thought that in order to become enlightened, the, there was a particular interpretation of the sacred texts that led um, um, many to believe that in order to become enlightened, one had to take birth in a certain caste and live a life in that caste and then in that life take the renounced order and become a mendicant, an ascetic. And... Uh, only then would it be possible to make a union with the Absolute. This didn't register that well with, with the general populace in many respects because it created quite a distance between themselves, over lifetimes between themselves and the Godhead. So there was a, there was a, a number of sadhus of saints who began to speak and interpret the sacred texts in such a way as to um, say that there is a very simple method for making union, communion with, with the Godhead, and it's available for anyone from any birth, from any place, and so forth, and it is to invoke the, the names of God hmm? in Kirtan. So there were many, in different sects and groups. Hmm? And um, Kabir, for example, uh, Guru Nanak, or uh, some famous people of that time, um, Tukaram, 
and amongst them Sri Chaitanya is perhaps the most prominent, and exploited, if you will, this idea of the, the taking advantage of the name and developed a whole system of spiritual practice and culture centered around that. And so Kirtan, this uh, sacred chanting, became the central uh, focus of this uh, sect and um, the leaders of the sect drew from the greater body of sacred literature, the Bhagavad Gita, for example, the Upanishads, the Veda, the Puranas, and so on and so forth, to support this idea. And so a lineage was formed in modern times. Of course, it, it expanded out beyond the borders of the subcontinent of India to Europe, and Amer- the Americas, and Asia, and so on and so forth. So we find persons like ourselves in places like this um, uh, participating in such um, kirtan. And as I said earlier, it's become somewhat of a popular thing in, in yoga circles, kirtan, but often perhaps not that well understood and often it, it uh, is presented as a form of um, entertainment and and without much explanation, if you will, of the kind of the underlying logic and philosophy to um, to the kirtan. Hmm? What it can bring about, hmm? how to participate in it, what can be the the, um, the result. In the beginning stage, of course, through kirtan, it's thought that the that the chitta, the chitta is in yoga terminology there is a gross or a crude form of matter and a subtle form of matter. So there's this called a physical and a psychic dimensions of matter. And then there's consciousness itself. The psychic dimension of matter is consciousness like the mind, we call it in Western um, culture. But in the yoga tradition, this is divided into buddhi, chitta, um, manas, and ahankar. These are subtle well, yoga, yoga terms. And um, um, now, of course, in, in modern society, the idea that there is, some, there is a mind and there is a subtle form of matter is not a popular idea. There's a, been a long um, trajectory of, in science and modern philosophy, um, of an attempt to reduce the entirety of our reality to the physical, to atoms, for example, quarks and gluons that are randomly moving and bouncing off of one another and so on and so forth, and that's what life is. It's a very... um, unflattering explanation of what we are that doesn't correspond very well with how we feel that what we are, that we, that our lives have meaning, value, that there's purpose, there's something to, 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 to attain in life and so forth. This reductive idea that's popular in Western philosophy and scientific community is, is, um, 
it's very counterintuitive to how we lead our life. It's an explanation of life that um, is heady um, and wordy, um, but it's not a, a, a talk that anyone can really walk. We can't walk through our lives as if it has no meaning whatsoever or purpose. Um, so the yoga school, of course, all the schools of yoga, they differ from this modern um, idea. And of course, not that everybody embraces it either, but um, the ancient spiritual traditions do not concur with this. And as we were saying last night, the reason that consciousness is actually, um, well, to put it in a brief way, other than matter, that there's an experiencer and then there's the experienced. Matter is experienced and we are the experiencer. Hmm. And um, in the yoga schools, then as I say, while there is this higher self, hmm, there's, the, there's the world of matter and it has two divisions, physical and psychic. And the psychic can't be reduced to the physical. There is something called mind and it's different from the brain. And there is something called consciousness, and it's different from mind and brain, and, and, and brain. Brain being physical matter, mind being subtle matter. But mind is, is such, chitta, that it can reflect pure consciousness. So when pure consciousness touches the chitta, it's reflected there, and then the chitta reflects on gross matter, and then the small self, the illusory self, is set in motion, so to speak. So, we, in the chitta, we get impressions from the world, and these impressions cause us to form habits. And we act often, for the most part, according to those habits. So, the first part or stage of progress through the chanting is said to be that stage in which the chitta is cleansed. It's compared to a mirror. If you take a mirror and I put it in front of something, that image will hold on the mirror. So this chitta is something like that. It gets images from the world and holds those images, and they cause us to conduct ourselves in certain ways. So here the idea is to, to clean the image off the mirror and give it another image. So, in the form of sound, through the name, for example, Govinda, Krishna, Hari, these are names, intimate names of the Godhead. Hmm. Speak about the Godhead in relation to uh, uh, devotees who love him as friends, hmm, as lovers, Radha and Krishna, and so on and so forth. By taking the name, singing the name, hmm, kind of the on the tongue and ear, in between the two is the mind, something like that. So the mind is captured and cleansed. It has a cleansing um, effect hmm, of the consciousness, or this means the cleansing of the chitta. Hmm. And then impressions from the the world, if you will, the inner realm of meditation that these names come out of, these names of the God that we sing, they're coming from the sacred texts describing something about the Godhead in Leela. Leela means the play 
of divinity. The movement in transcendence that's different than the movement in this world. The movement in this world is the movement of karma. We talked about that last night a little bit. The action that we plug ourselves into bears the fruit of a reaction that keeps us in a, in a kind of a cycle of action and reaction that um, causes repeated birth and death, birth and death, birth and death, and this changing of identities. When we weigh in on that from the vantage point of the uh, saintly people and sacred texts, we see the futility of the pursuit of things in the name of becoming more, because we're not a thing. And, and so with, when we weigh in with knowledge, as I said last night, action starts to diminish. Even to think deeply, you have to sit quietly. So the more we think deeply about the nature of the material circumstances, about the nature of acquisition, acquiring things, for example, to what we move toward, we move to get things, to get money, to get, to go someplace, to, we, we're always trying to become happy, to be secure, to be virtuous, without knowing we are a unit of happiness, we are a unit of virtue, we are a unit of being. We sense that if we don't move, we may not continue to exist. So that's because we've identified with something that will be here today and gone tomorrow. Our whole psychology, our body, it, 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 it's uh, perishable, obviously. Hmm. So, while we move to avoid that perishing, we're really in pursuit of, of the eternal nature of the self. We're looking for it in matter, and that's obviously problematic because all material things have come together and, and dissipate in due course, transform. So the action then, when I speak of action, as we did last night, we're speaking of action in this way, in relation to matter in the pursuit of becoming the more that we are without realizing that we don't really acquire anything except for a short period. We're renters for a short period of time. And we could be kicked out <laughs> at any time and there's no, there's no you know, government system to protect you in that regard. So, so when we weigh in that with, with knowledge, then we start to move from an active life to a more contemplative life, a life of introspection and inward pursuit and so forth. So we come from... from being implies action because anything that bees or that, it, that is that exists does something. Hmm. Being, knowing is another thing. Knowing, knowing tends to diminish the action that is attached to being, but to know a being that is more complete than we could be by any type of action in the world. Hmm? Action and knowing. Knowing and, act, knowing and acting. Hmm? Both things seem reasonable, but they really oppose one another 
in an in overarching sense of the terms. The more we know, the less we want to, the less we want to do, the less we want to act in a way that's really not in our interest. And so the inner life comes, but the inner life then becomes one of stillness and knowing, but not one of loving. So again, the Bach tradition is one about is about loving. We, obviously, if we want to love, and we do, we can't love things that are here today and gone tomorrow, and in, a, in an enduring way. So there has to be a transcendental object of love to repose ourselves in. This is, of course, what is involved ultimately in bhakti. But in order to to love spiritually, hmm, then some preparation, preparatory work is, uh, is, uh, is, is required. Hmm. Just like hmm. well, because we're moving in a different direction. Hmm. We're moving in pursuit of things. And now, if we want, where well, we can't find love, if we want to find love and transcendence, then our attachment to things has to wane. We have to weigh in with knowledge, and then we have to do something that is called bhakti, that will do away with the impressions on our chitta that are causing us to, us, us to act in ways that are not in our own interest. So the first stage of spiritual progress from the chanting, is this cleansing of the citta. Hmm? This is called bhakti in practice. Hmm? So it's kind of like... Um, um, if you want to go out and meet, go out on a date, then you want to get cleaned up first, something like that, and uh, um, put on a new suit of clothes and Look your best, something like that. So, this is a, a, um, an internal cleaning, and the name, if you will, of the God, it enters the heart like a sweeper. In the heart, as I've said in other discussions, there are many desires. I'm speaking of the heart in a, in a metaphorical sense in the citta, in the heart, another translation of the citta heart, there are many desires. Like many multinational mega-corporations have set up shop in the heart to attract us, to take us here, to take us there, to advertise themselves, just like today we're being bombarded with opportunities. It, it, it appears as if we're being given so much opportunity for freedom, but it's... <laughs> choose this, pick that, and as, as soon as you pick it on the internet, someone's following you and uh, tracking you and understanding your movements and so forth, and then sending you these subtle pop-up messages and not so subtle and other subtle ones in, in, in owning you, so to speak. Hmm? Um, so, in a, in, a, in a broader sense, we're kind of owned by all these desires. We're kind of defined by our desires. Mm. And 
so in the heart, then so many desires, like many big corporations with neon signs and subtle methods of attaching our, uh, capturing our attention and so forth. So the name of Krishna in Kirtan is thought to enter the heart, around which it said we uh, have erected very high walls and locked doors and we're protecting it. But he doesn't care for that. So in the form of the name, the Godhead goes in anyway. He doesn't care for high walls and locked doors and appears there very humbly as a sweeper. A sweeper. In India there used to be a class of people who were sweepers. That's what they did. They swept the streets. So the name of Krishna enters the heart like a sweeper and sweeps with his like he sets up a shop selling brooms, but they're magic brooms. They sweep, and when they sweep the heart, the chitta, then, which is reflecting the atma, pure consciousness, the pure con- the light of the self starts to shine. Like if you took a piece of coal. Our consciousness, our, our self, our atma, it's like it's like a diamond underneath a mountain, you know. If you underneath a mountain, you mine, and then you find—I guess you find a coal, and you compress it, and you, there you find it. It's just so dark. You can imagine a whole mountain of dirt, and rock, and then and then there's the—is it coal? Diamonds come from coal, isn't it? Right. And the coal is very dark, and inside it, there's a bright, bright light. So. Our chitta is, got, is kind of like a diamond in the rough, and it's quite in the rough. There's quite a bit of mountain and coal of ideas and conceptions and impressions over many, many lifetimes. Hmm? There. By our good fortune, we're moving under the influence of our previous karma. But the force of bhakti is also in the world through saintly persons who distribute that. Somehow or other, we come in touch with that. Hmm? Now, this is a very dramatic, different influence than the karmic influence. And it has the power to remove the whole mountain hmm? and the, uh, the darkness of the coal, if you will, and, and reveal the, uh, the uh, illuminated, luminous nature of the self. So, through the name, the heart, in Kirtan, the heart is the consciousness is swept, and suddenly we start to experience the bliss of the self. That's a different experience altogether than than winning, you know, the lottery or anything that you, you know, finding the person that uh, having a baby or you know all these kind of wonderful things in the world that uh, are peak experiences, hearing, going to the concert and hearing the, the band of your choice play their favorite song of your choice. There were so many peak moments, winning the, the, the World Cup, you know, on the team. These are peak moments for people that just don't quite make it. <laughs> they're, they're like, and then they're like fantastic and they're built up and, you know, we wanted to win the World Cup and we won and, and, and now what? <laughs> Where you hear your favorite song, and it's just great, and it just moves you in a certain way, and but it just doesn't quite take you over the top to where you feel you, you, you could be going. 
to a sense of fulfillment that's that's joyful as much as it is meaningful, hmm? profound, kind of noetic bliss, a knowing, a knowing that that I know now that I don't need to know anything else. Hmm? I know myself. Hmm? What am I? Hmm? I'm not matter. I have no beginning. I have no way to experience, to tangibly experience. I'm eternal. How can we talk about that? It's, it doesn't like fit between the ears. But we have to say something. I'm eternal. You know what this? How this feels? This feels like it's over. The whole struggle is over. In so many ways, we're struggling to eat, to, to deal with our parents, to deal with our kids. <laughs> It'll turn into that one to the other for us in most cases. Hmm? To just to go to a party and try to, you know, whatever, to be and make, and it work somehow, you know, psychologically and socially and so It's just a constant struggle, constantly adjusting. It's not quite working. Hmm? Uh, and so the, the end of all of that, I mean, comprehensively to end it all, hmm? this is the be- real beginning, the tangible beginning of actual spiritual life, actual yogic experience. And this kirtan, of course, there's a method to it also, but I'm just speaking a little bit about it. It's very powerful. And, it, and the name is like sweeps the heart, cleanses the heart. And all these desires that are like calling on us like, and, and have a grip on us, if you will, hmm? like different corporations and so forth have a grip on us without us even knowing it, hmm? and, uh, and so forth. They're, just the light of the self makes all their uh, neon signs, if you will, just look pale in comparison. Just pale in comparison. This is a little glimpse of what the self is, what I am. Hmm? Gives so much hope. Hmm? So, and not a, not a false hope, but a profound experiential hope. I've now stepped on the ground of being and I am made of that ground. Hmm? I thought I was a being, and I realized I am being. I thought I was a being that had a beginning and an end, and I hope it doesn't end too soon, and, and whatnot, and so on. I try to make something out of that being hmm? that is, you know, really some, is someone sitting on death row, as we say, and uh, <laughs> we're, we, we have a cell, this is the cell, and then we have a sentence, a certain type. This the, the being idea, I am a being, is a small thing, that I, that I am being, hmm? that is a much bigger thing. I am, I'm standing on the ground of being, and I'm made of that stuff. Hmm. This is incredible. So, the name in the, in in bhakti in practice, hmm, it cleanses the heart, and we begin to see the self. And there's so much optimism now, hmm? and it's again, it's not a false optimism; it's a knowing kind of optimism. I know there's knowing as to the nature of material existence. Know it for what it is. I'll not be distracted by it again. 
Hmm? Material existence is like a, a constant, um, a, 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 a carrot, a carrot, an appetizer, promise of a full meal that never comes. And if you get only eat appetizers, you get indigestion. You don't get a full meal. So there's, there's a knowing on that side. I know the nature of the material predicament and I won't, therefore, fall prey to it Again, the the, 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 the the false offer that by a little more acquisition, just adjusting, tweaking the situation a little bit more, I'll become satisfied. Hmm? I know now, satisfaction, meaningful life, lies within. I'm still without. I still am functioning in the world and so on and so forth. So, of course, there's a way then to work with both. Hmm? But such that the material side of it does not get in the way of the central focus of one's life, of spiritual culture and practice. The yoga, the sadhana, becomes the life around which everything orbits. Other things are done; they're important. There may be relationships, and there may be you have to eat. There are um, different things to do. That are essential, and so and so psychologically we have certain needs, and physically, but hmm, we um, now have a new idea in life, a new goal, and we have experience of it. Hmm? What is our prospect? What we are? Some beginning experience. So the whole of our everyday, ordinary life then becomes centered around this this culture. This is what it means to be a sadhaka, a practitioner. It means to be in the world, but not really of the world. Hmm? It's a very auspicious position to be in. And from that, from sadhana comes sadhya. From practice comes perfection. Hmm? From a sadhaka to a siddha. Hmm? And this means that when the heart or the conscience is sufficiently cleansed, hmm? And the self is coming out. It's coming out in the context of bhakti. So it's coming out, not only is my self coming out, what I am, as a unit of sat, chit, ananda, of, of, of eternity, knowledge, and bliss, but my source as well. And in a, a relationship with that source. So because bhakti is about a relationship hmm, with the, with our source, there is a, an emotive component in bhakti. Obviously, cleansing the heart is not is is not the emotional side of it. Hmm. It's what the cleansing of the heart is doing, cleansing of the consciousness doing, is enabling us to see with new eyes the nature of material emotion and how it's a roller coaster ride. Because the emotional life hmm, is derived from being focused on material manifestations, which are here today and gone tomorrow. So going to be, I'm attached to something, I have feelings for it, but then it disappears. Hmm? 
Now I have other feelings for it that are <laughs> the same. The thing that was giving me joy now becomes a source of my. I bought a new car, I really liked it, and then then it then it crashed. It's the same car. Now it's in a different condition, and it's causing me anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it is with all things; they will always transform. Therefore, the, the Buddha taught, and the Gita teaches also that suffering is is, is the um, attachment is the womb from which suffering is born. So our emotional life is based on attachment to things and and so-called beings rather than to being. Hmm? Also, are always transforming and changing and so forth. And so we have an emotional life that comes from that, hmm? but it's very up and down, and and it never quite the ups never quite go over the top and fulfill entirely. Hmm? And they're followed by often by lows. Hmm? So, when now the object of our focus is not matter, that now the citta is focused on consciousness and the source. That source, unlike all material things, is steady and still, if you will, not subject to transformation, not subject to birth, growth, deterioration, death, and so forth, um, like all material manifestations. So, the possibility of emotional life in relation not to matter, hmm? illusory appearances and names, name, name, nama rupa, names and forms, hmm? here today and gone tomorrow. Now there's names for the Absolute, and I'm chanting them, and the Absolute is reliable, so to speak. The God that is reliable, my source. So now, as the heart becomes cleansed, Hmm? The sadhaka becomes a sadhya, attains sadhya, attains emotional life in transcendence. Now, this emotional life hmm, is such that the entire emotional experience takes us over the top, if you will, of what any material experience, emotional experience of a high we hope will take us to it never comes close. When this emotional life develops in bhakti, you see, this is when where we make a difference between a spiritual path of knowledge that culminates in stillness, quietude, and a spiritual life focused rather than on knowledge, on love, because love requires movement. And, and, and variety, and so forth. Hmm. So in bhakti, we go beyond the stillness of understanding the futility of material pursuit hmm, that makes us still and, and, and contemplative and inward, peaceful, shanti, 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 and so forth. Hmm. Hmm. We go from peace to praying, from peace to love. Material life is like war. <laughs> it's a struggle. We go from with knowledge we come to peace. With bhakti we can come to love. Hmm? Hmm. Hmm. 
The kirtan brings brings wisdom. It cleanses the heart. I see what I am. I stop moving in ignorance in relation to temporary things. The war is over. Hmm? But it brings peace in the context of the pursuit of love. Hmm? And so now there's emotional life in transcendence and movement. Hmm? And we enter into then the emotional life of the Godhead, which is referred to by the term, the word, Sanskrit word, lila, I mentioned earlier. Lila means play. Hmm? Karma means work. Hmm? It's like the work in a prison where, you know, you just, the old, and I don't know what they do now, but it used to be when I was a kid, I'm not that I have much experience, but uh, they would break bricks, you know. Just, they would just break bricks, something like that. Just, mean, just keep them busy, something like meaningless work. This is a material life, something like that. Just breaking bricks, just breaking bricks. Hmm? So, <laughs> karma means also that, again, it's the reactionary work. So it's the, the action I do that it constitutes taking. Because I, feel, I don't know myself to be full, to be a unit of eternity, knowledge, and bliss. Therefore, I'm pursuing eternity, knowledge, and bliss. But I'm pursuing it in relation to things that aren't eternal, that aren't cognizant, and aren't blissful. Hmm? Hmm? But I attach myself to certain things. I give meaning to them hmm, that they don't really have unto themselves. Hmm? And then I give certain meaning to them and I live within that meaning that I give to them. Hmm? I'm really living for myself. I'm a unit of meaning, purpose, of eternity, knowledge, and bliss. Hmm? We don't really love a thing. We really love ourselves. How can you love a thing? It can't love back. Hmm? We give meaning to things and we project ourselves into things by saying, mine, it's my house, it's my car, it's my this or my that. My means you, I, and you've gone into things. Hmm? You've entered into the things and given them a meaning. Why is your house any more meaningful than my house? just because it's yours, <laughs> for you. And you're in there. You've projected yourself and your unit of consciousness. So you find the house meaningful because you have identified with it. Hmm? So it's you that has meaning, hmm? purpose, that has joy. You are the lovable object. All of us is. Consciousness is. Not the things. Hmm? But we're deluded by the arrangement of things that we ourselves arrange and and lose sight of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So this this kind of movement in the world is the movement of karma, and we 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 don't know that we are a unit of eternity, knowledge, and bliss. So we, without thinking about it, unconsciously, we're really pursuing what we are. We we, we want to live an enduring life. We want a loving life. We want a secure life. Mm-hmm. Security means knowledge here, chit. Hmm? Enduring means sat, eternal. Loving means ananda, bliss. That's what we want. We are that. Hmm? We are that. We want that. We don't know we are that. So we pursue it in relation to the to matter. Hmm? And so we're taking from the world. And when you take, then you owe. Hmm? 
matters like a machine. So when you owe then off to work, you go. You have to pay. So this is karma. So we take, it appears that we have something, but we really have a debt only. So this kind of movement, karma, that's bondage. That means you have to take birth again, 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 and so on and so forth. So you become wise, stop taking. Stop taking. And stop thinking that being is derived from having. It's not. The sense of being that's derived from having is as vacuous as the having in this world, which is zero. We don't really have anything that we can keep. So the sense of being that's derived from what I have is very shallow, very empty. So when I have knowledge and I stop trying to have and I can learn how to be independent of the sense of having what I am as a unit of consciousness. So again, from movement, false illusory movement, I come to stillness, to peace. But Leela is a movement. So here we have movement on this side, down here, the karmic movement. We rise above that through knowledge, we come here to peace. From war, we went to peace. But now, because we went to peace in the context of bhakti, we ended the war, we got peace, now there's more to attain, not just to be, but to love. So there's movement then in transcendence. And this is the movement of the god that we call Leela. It's play. It means this. I said that the world is, is not still, it's constantly moving if you will. It's like musical chairs and you're out. You know the musical chairs? <laughs> and you're out. <laughs> now it's you're out, sorry. Something like that. So it's a constantly moving. I said, on the other side, Brahman, the name for the absolute, is, is everywhere. If you're everywhere, then there's nowhere to go, right? And you can't move. Because you're already there. Hmm? So Brahman is still. The ground of being is still. You can actually stand on it. It's not like here, the ground is, mo- is, 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 is moving. Hmm? The ground of being is still. Brahman is still. Hmm? Brahman is everywhere. So, how can it move? And Brahman is omniscient, all-knowing. So when you know everything, it also takes impetus for movement away. But you already know everything. <laughs> so what are you going to do? Hmm? So, while we might think that omniscience and omnipresence is desirable, from the Godhead's perspective, it has problems. Because if you know everything, and you're everywhere, there's nowhere to go and there's nothing to do. So what do you do when you're bored? Then you play. Hmm? So this is the Brahman with a life. Hmm? Playing. Hmm? And, the, and, and So who are you going to play with? <laughs> There's someone to play with, right? So the, the Bhagwan plays with the Bhakta. Bhagwan means the Brahman concentrated, Satchirananda concentrated, take a shape for playing. Hmm? Hmm. And the music by which the Godhead plays, that is called Bhakti. Hmm? 
That is called bhakti. Hmm? Love. The God is not a machinist. You know, in Christianity, you have this idea of God as a machinist, and he designed the world, something like that. That's an interesting idea. He's intelligent enough to design the world. It's thought that 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 materialism says that matter comes together in some way and turns into life. And then the intelligent design people say, no, God is super intelligent. He arranged dead matter in such a way as it came to life. The only difference between God then and matter is just, uh, he knows how to arrange it better. Hmm? Something like that. But from our perspective, life does not come out of dead matter. Hmm? Hmm? Life is consciousness. It's not biological. Hmm? It's not a psychological phenomenon. Hmm? It's consciousness. It's independent of matter. It's not created at any time. Hmm? The ground of being is not something that came into being at some point, and we're part of that, we, we, that ground of being. Hmm? So rather than a machinist, no, he's depicted more as, as a musician, hmm? and the notes have capacity to improvise. We are the notes. We have some capacity within, within the context of the song some capacity to, to, to improvise. So there's m- movement in transcendence. Hmm? There's a unity there. In bhakti, there's a unity. You want union with God? Good. Hmm? I'm going to talk about unity for a minute. Unity, unity for what, of course, is important. Unity for, there could be, Nazi Germany was unified too. That's not a very good idea. So unity for what? Okay, unity for Enlightenment for for, for for enlightenment. So fine. Now, how will we have unity? We could have unity by there because there's only one. Let's take from musical example. If we have one note, then we have unity, right? I mean, kind of. It's kind of a st- static unity. A more dynamic unity would be many notes. A concert, many instruments, and different notes, but all working together. And within the context of that concert, there can be improvision also. Hmm? So this is the kind of unity we find in bhakti. That's not that we cancel out ourselves, hmm? but we enter into an emotional life with the Godhead. And he, I'm just giving a metaphor, he is a musician, the Godhead, is playing the song, and and we are the notes, and he's dancing to the notes. Hmm? And there's movement and transcendence. Hmm? And the lead note is Radha, of course. In our tradition, we have Krishna and Radha, so the absolute is feminine and masculine at the same time. When I say he, I'm referring to Krishna. When I say her, I'm referring to Radha. Hmm? Radha and Krishna. Radha is is the transformation of of love of Krishna. Personified, and Krishna is dancing according to the movements of Radha. Radha is Bhakti, Devi, the goddess of Bhakti. Hmm? So she is our ideal, the goddess of Bhakti. Hmm? The goddess of Bhakti 
descends in the form of the name of Krishna. And with bhakti, we dance with Krishna, so to speak, in the form of his name. And the beginning of the dance is, as I said, the cleansing of the heart. It culminates in an emotional life and transcendence. So that you can be and know that you're eternal and that you can love also. So you are sat, eternal, chit, cognizant, and ananda, loving. Hmm? To, to, to end the war with material existence is to be and to know and to stop taking, which is part of love, but to love is something more as well. Hmm? So bhakti affords us experience not only of ending the war, cleansing the heart, not only of coming to knowledge, peace, hmm? but also love, love and transcendence. Hmm? So, a little bit about kirtan. Any question? <laughs> what may be the, the understanding for, uh, in particular, for Ashtanga yogis and their uh, idea? Ashtanga yoga? Ashtanga yoga. Ashtanga yoga is, uh, is mentioned in, is described in the Bhagavad Gita in the sixth chapter. And of course it's the subject of the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Many of the things I've talked about you'll find there. Hmm? Like the chitta. Chitta Bhritti Nirodha is the goal of Ashtanga yoga. Chitta Bhritti Nirodha. The chitta has brittis, those impressions. Nirodha means the end. To end the impressions, the material impressions on the chitta. Hmm? And so by ending the, this through the disciplines of yoga, hmm, then one becomes still. And ultimately, the Yoga Sutras speak about the possibility of what's called, a, to use a Catholic term, uh, cross-cultural reference here, beatific vision. In our bhakti terminology, we call it shantarasa. It means the goal of Astanga Yoga, according to the, the, the sutras, is actually shantarasa. Shant means means like to 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 sit forever and uh, and witness the, the atma, the self, in the yoga philosophy. Of the, of the Yoga Sutras is a witness. Hmm? The fact that it's also a doer is not brought out in the Sutras. Hmm? So by Astanga Yoga you cannot become an agent of action in transcendence. You can become a peaceful participant in transcendence hmm? and experience the beatific vision. For example, I talked about Krishna being movement of transcendence. In the Stanga Yoga, there's no, the, the, the yogi, the perfect yogi, is not interested in the movement or the, the qualities, the lila or the qualities of Krishna, the form only of Ishwar, Ishwar Pranidhan. This is central to yoga. The sutras, this is from, from the sutras. The most efficacious practice within the context of Astanga Yoga is Ishwar Pranidhan. Ishwar Pranidhan means bhakti, little bhakti. 
ईश्वर प्राणिधान टू मेक प्रणाम टू ईश्वर ईश्वर मीन्स एक्चुअली मीन्स कंट्रोलर मीन्स गाड योग इज वेरी मच अबाउट कंट्रोल कंट्रोल द माइंड कंट्रोल द सेंसेस कंट्रोल योर डाइजेशन कंट्रोल ऑल कैंस ऑफ थिंग्स द होल बॉडी ग्रोस बॉडी एंड द सटल बॉडी यू कैन एक्सप्लोर इन योग ग्रिप ऑन द होल थिंग्स अ वेरी सोफिस्टिकेटेड methodology to getting control and of course the control involves letting go also of attachments which is counterintuitive but um and so because this is the preoccupation of yoga the ideal in transcendence of yoga is this is is the beatific vision of the absolute to sit and view it's called shanta shanta means like peaceful it means not to participate in the movement in the leela and not to be emotional either not to have much of an emotional relationship shanta means that it is the very lower end of relationship of, of of a loving relationship with the absolute like eternal um appreciation hmm? eternal kind of gratitude something like that um an experience of the beatitude of the absolute hmm? um from there on a ladder within bhakti you go to dasya from shanta to dasya dasya means servitude like hanuman you know hanuman servant of ram the monkey is famous in the, in the literature um hanuman servitude then there's love and friendship fraternal love and so on romantic love so so as you go up the scale it becomes more the 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 relationship with the absolute becomes more emo- of a, filled with emotional content shantaras it's just the lower end of 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 that and some people obviously get influenced by that and they this they become um this becomes gradually their ideal for example krishna nama charge is the, is the is the person who is the guru of the two principal uh gurus teachers of astanga yoga in the western world patabi joyce and iyengar hmm? and he clearly teaches that the gold of ashtanga yoga is bakuntham bakuntham means to enter into the domain the internal meditative subjective world of the godhead and and sit in a, a eternal admiration something like that eternal admiration hmm? now patabi joyce took it took it a little bit in a different way hmm? and um yoga sutras and yoga philosophy in the sutras is dualistic so there is the abs- there is the ishwar and then there's there's us he took it in a monistic direction hmm angar didn't do that so help yeah so just like you have you know you have angas limbs of ashtanga yoga yama niyamas hmm 
Kirtan is not one of them. Kirtan is one of the angas, the limbs of the body of bhakti. Um, one of the limbs of the body of Astanga Yoga is Brahmacharya, not a popular one. Celibacy is one of the limbs of Ashtanga Yoga. I just make it as a point that Kirtan is easier to do than celibacy. And, um, of course, by Kirtan you can rise above the sexual urges and so forth very easily. So, and then, you know, there are all these popular versions of in the, in the yoga community. In the classical sense, this is what it's about. What else? Yes? I was thinking about spiritual practice and yoga in relation with the society or the general society or even the world. It seems that there's this idea that keeps popping up from time to time. In Finland, at least, maybe because of our, because of the strong influence of Lutheranism in the society where, where um, service to other people is emphasized so heavily. So this idea of yoga and spiritual practice being selfish somehow always keeps coming back and I found it kind of difficult to convince people because when they look at us like at the stage where we are at, they don't really see the high ideals we're going for, but they see someone who's, you know, putting it in a really crude way, staying at home, repeating mantras instead of going and volunteering for some cause. So you must have answered this question countless times before, but I was hoping you could do something. Mm-hmm. 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 One thing I would say is that, first of all, is that um, there's probably more talk about philanthropic and altruistic activities than there are people engaging in them. Mm-hmm. And people make arguments about um, and advocate such, it's really easy to get on the internet and go, like, I like that, helping earthquake victims. You, know. you might even send a dollar or two, or a few hundred even, but to go there and do the work and make sure they're fed and and, and so forth, very few people are doing that. Hmm. So, so uh, one thing is the popular idea to be, you know, of service and help others and so on and so forth. And then, you, as I say, another thing is who who does it? Hmm? So, at least for yourself, as a spiritual practitioner, you've, you've entered into a life uh, that, seriously, that involves a culture of service. And um, you come here, even in the context of that, to learn... And, and and what you do learn, you you share. Hmm? Um, yes, you do have some practice in your own home that you do, chanting mantras and so forth. And obviously the people who make this argument, they don't understand that. Um, uh, but 
even in the Christian tradition, at least in the Catholic tradition, um, Lutherans over there, <laughs> it might be different, but uh, they have uh, for centuries had convents and monasteries, and some of the convents, all the nuns do is they pray for the people in the world all day long. They pray for them. Now, nobody goes and argues with them and says, why aren't you out there feeding people? Why are you just praying for them? Hmm? So there is even some sensibility within Christianity that is very much often at least portrayed as being oriented towards helping the people. The Pope, Pope Francis is a Catholic. I mean, he came to the United States not long ago and was talking about helping the poor and the, 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 the imbalance in, in um, wealth and distribution and so forth, kind of a socialist uh, Christian perspective. But he's a Latin American, so you get that in Latin America. They have the liberation theology uh, amongst the Catholics down here, um, which is a socialistic type of... Well, Jesus was a socialist. Um, uh, of sorts, uh, spiritual socialist. So, um, e- anyway, even in that tradition, you have a class of people who um, spend their entire time ostensibly meditating. You call it prayer, but I mean it's contemplative life. And they are not thought to be not doing anything for the world. So you have orders, even within Christianity, where people are doing something... Uh, similar to a, a, a Hindu contemplative type of life. That said, our life is not um, entirely contemplative by any means. I mean, there, there are monasteries that don't even invite people to come. People aren't even, or regular people aren't even allowed to come there. Hmm? We invite people here. You've been invited, of course. You're, and we have guests tonight and so forth and, and so on. So we invite people and we share the teachings and um, and one thing that you you know you may not be involved in um, well whatever is there any number of causes out there right which one are you going to be involved in you know you're going to help um, um, I mean there's thousands of them. You can only how many can you you know pick up? Hmm? Your idea is in our idea. Let's find where we can place our energy to do the most good. I've given an example before. If we're sitting in a circle and someone says, "Hey, look, there's some hungry people on the street. I'd like to pass the hat and ask everybody to put something in it." So the hat goes around and gets to the second or the last person. He says, "I'm not giving." Ooh, bad. Why not? He says, "Because just." Putting money in this hat to buy a meal for those people is not going to solve the problem. He says, the problem is the system. So I'm going to pass my hat around and ask people to change the system. And then we're going to go, instead of going and buying a meal for these people, we're going to put all our money into changing the political system. And he goes, wow, yeah, that's more profound. Take the hat money out of the first hat, put it in the second hat. The second hat comes around and then comes to, to me on the end and I said, I'm not giving. <gasps> oh, bad. <laughs> Why not? Because it's not the system. Hmm. Hmm. It's because 
Even if you have a system that feeds everybody, you'll never end hunger. Hmm? As soon as the meal's over, it comes back again. Hmm? The way to end hunger is to is to really to tell people, to explain to people that they're that they're a unit of being, knowing and such it ananda, being knowing and loving, hmm? and that and 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 that by spiritual practice they can realize they can end hunger. Hmm? And when you practice that, also then you don't need to eat as much either. <laughs> you don't have to take as much. We have a refined diet. We have vegetarians here. When you're vegetarians, you don't eat as much because it doesn't take as much grain to produce mm, animals for eating. But you know, you know the equation, I suppose. It takes grain is better distributed as it's uh, as grain for feeding people than it is for feeding animals and then eating the animals. You have much more to go around. So we've dealt with the practical problem and we've dealt with it in a metaphysical sense as well. And we're sharing the metaphysical knowledge of what the self is, where hunger comes from. Hunger is a symptom. Um, bigotry is a symptom. Um, infirmity is a symptom. What's the disease? The disease is I think I matter. Hmm? I think I don't know that I'm consciousness, and all kinds of problems come up when you do that. So, we, you are, you, you, you share that knowledge with people. You write books. The two of you are uh, authors, and um, what do you call yourself? Authors, publishers, right? Hmm? You publish graphic novels, and in your graphic novels. That you, you 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 try to share philosophical insights, so you know, you have to look at your life and say, well, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, here's what we do. We, you know, we 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 spend our whole time putting together these graphic novels so we can share a kernel of of the of the knowledge hmm, of our understanding as to how to solve all the problems of material life, which we see as symptoms of the disease. Evolution, and that's how we spend our time. Primarily, that's our job, even. And then in between that, we do we meditate, and we come to see our teacher, and and spend time and learn more. It's, 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 it seems to me that you have a pretty um, caring and uh, giving life compared to, um, to mo- most people. Um, your whole life has changed around a spiritual tradition, and um, it's unfortunate that people think of uh, meditation to be some type of a cop out or something like that. It's not easy to do. Hmm? What is meditation about? Meditation about you can only sit. In terms of how you walk, so it's a whole lifestyle. If you're out just doing all kinds of things, just gratifying your senses, and then you go sit and meditate. You're not going to be able to sit there very long. You have to change your lifestyle. Meditation has to ch- your, your sitting has to change how you walk, how you interact with the world, and so forth. Hmm? This meditation is not some idle thing. It's changing you as a person. It's turning you from a taker into a giver. Hmm? 
Because in meditation you start to experience that, you, that you're so full as a unit of consciousness that you don't need to take and that you have now something to offer. Hmm? So, really your whole life is about giving. Hmm? And if someone says, hey, let's go down and have a rally, you know, for... against terrorism or something like that. And you say, well, I'm going to go meditate. Right. You know. Anyway, <laughs> people may not un- understand, but you're, but everyone's a terrorist on some level. We, are, we want to end the terrorism in our own self. You say, I'm a terrorist, and I'm gonna, this is how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to go and meditate. So I stop terrorizing people and seeing them as objects for that for my gratification rather than let them be what they are see them through a different lens i'm a terrorist glad you brought it up i'm a terrorist and i have to go deal <laughs> with with my 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 terrors and this is my method meditation it's a help okay two words on that all right let's stop there see see gorana tanandaki jai krishna balaram ki jai